Open your Bibles to John chapter 19. John 19, verse 30. We are at the sixth of seven sayings of our Lord. Lord willing, in February, we will deal with the seventh of these sayings. James 3, verse 2 says, If anyone does not sin with his tongue, he is a perfect man and able to control his entire body. Jesus said in Matthew 12, every idle word that men will speak, they will give account thereof in the day of judgment. By your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. While he was on the cross, he said 41 words. Seven different times he spoke, And if you add up all the words, it's only 41. He never wasted a single word. Both this statement and the previous are only one word in the original. I am thirsty is one word. And it is finished is one word. A.W. Pink Pink said, the ancient Greeks boasted of being able to say much in little, to give a sea of substance in a drop of language. This was regarded as the perfection of oratory. And what the Greeks sought is here found. In John 19, verse 30, we have one word. How could he have put so much meaning into a single word? What has he said up to this point? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The word of love, compassion. He said that toward the beginning maybe around 9 o'clock or 9.30 in the morning. Shortly after that, he said to one of the thieves, today you will be with me in paradise, the word of evangelism or urgency. And then nothing else is recorded for several hours. And then our Lord opens his eyes and sees his son, or John, his disciple, and his mother. And he says, there's a new relationship here. Woman, look at your new son. Son, look at your new mother. This is a word of new relationships or of the church. And then, at the end of the six hours on the cross... He says four things in quick succession, one after another. If you compare all of the accounts, you will realize that these four come one after another. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then I thirst. Then tonight it is finished. And finally, into your hands I commend my spirit. Which means his, his speech began 
at the very beginning. And then he's silent for several hours. And then he picks up at the very end as darkness is covering the land. And he has something to say. He has the word of separation or rejection when the father turned his back on the son. He has the word of physical suffering when he says, I thirst. And here we have the word of victory. Where our Lord Jesus Christ conquers and wins and says, it is finished. It is approximately 3 p.m. in the afternoon. It is dark outside. The sun has been blackened because of the horror when the father turned away from his son. They have abused him. They have whipped him. They have mocked him. They have spit on the face of God Almighty. They drove nails into the wrists of this man and then bent the ends over on the other side of the wood. He has been in agonizing pain for more than six hours. And then they shove a sponge with vinegar into his parched and pained lips. And now he gives us complete success. And so I want to ask this evening, what was finished? I began to prepare different sermons on this passage. And as many of the passages, I wondered if it could become an entire series. Just this one word, it is finished. But I would like tonight to give you seven mighty actions that have all been gathered up into the word salvation. When you hear the word salvation, what do you think? Many of us have confused and cloudy ideas of what salvation is. Let me tell you, salvation is a broad word like living. If someone said, oh, I haven't seen you for five years, what have you been doing? And you said, I've been living. That's such a broad word, we would say, well, tell me what exactly have you been doing while living? When we hear of the word salvation, it does mean something. It means the entire collection of all the actions God does to deliver us from the wrath of God, the dominion of sin, the tyranny of death, and tonight I'd like to give you seven actions that were completed on the cross. And before I begin, let me speak right to your hearts for just a moment. And here's what I would say. Many of us are either ignorant in our heads of the meaning of important Bible words. I'm going to give you seven tonight. And Jesus finished these seven. And as I give them, ask yourself, did I know that before I came in here to church tonight? If you did not know these things, then take notes. Download the sermon. Re-listen to it. 
You can find it on our church website or you can get the podcast. Send me a text message. I'll send you the link. Listen to the sermon over and over until you get it. You need to learn in your head what these doctrines and teachings are. Or maybe you have another problem. Perhaps you have both of them. Maybe you have the second problem. Here it is. Maybe in your heart, and this might be you, some of you young people who've grown up hearing this kind of thing, maybe Junior or Colin, maybe you've heard these teachings and you say, oh, I've learned that before. But let me ask, have you ever cast your soul on these teachings? As I talk for the next 30 minutes, I want you to ask yourself, where is my problem? Is my problem intellectual that I didn't even know the meanings of these words? Or was my problem right in my heart? I didn't love them and throw my soul on them and cast my heart and my eternity and my life and death and my fears and my hopes all on these teachings. And I'll tell you one more thing as I get ready to begin. Years ago, I grew up in a Christian home. My mother and my father were involved in the hippie movement in America in the 1960s. That included drugs, fornication, alcohol. My parents were involved in that. They were never even married in a Christian church. They were married at like Department of Home Affairs on a whim. My mom, at, I think she was 21, said to my dad, come on, let's get married. Okay, fine. So they went to the department, signed a certificate, and then went and had a hamburger. I grew up, though, because just after that happened, my mom met another girl. My mom was about 21 at this time. Met another girl, and the girl talked to her about going to church and being a Christian. My mom knew nothing of this, because my mom's mom first got pregnant when she was 14. She had three kids. My mom was born before my grandmother was 20 years old. My grandmother never lived with her husband. She had multiple men. My mom grew up in nothing like Christianity, and neither did my father. And this other woman talked to my mom and led her to Christ over the phone. And then my mom talked to my dad and they started going to a Baptist church that preaches the gospel. They knew nothing of this. And they even told me when we first started going there, we thought, what is this church? How can we ever do what they're doing? Because of what she heard there, my mom went home and she took all of her pants. She put them in a bag and burnt them in a fire and decided only to wear dresses. <laughs> I'm not saying you have to do that. My wife sometimes wears pants. It's not a sin. My little girl wore pants yesterday on the hike. But my mom thought, oh, I've got to be a Christian, whatever it takes. My dad followed her, they went to church, and they taught me to go to church Sunday morning, Sunday night. When I was about five years old, I remember, I have these vague memories of being afraid of dying. And my Sunday school teacher, Mary Leibengood, said, you've got to pray to be a Christian. So little Seth imagined me about Cameron's size. Dear Jesus, I pray to be a Christian. Amen. 
But do you think the fear left? It stayed. Again, multiple times, I would talk to the Sunday school teacher or to my mom. When I was about seven, my mom, I have this memory, my mom coming up to me in my bed and saying, if you're so afraid, Seth, why don't you pray? And again, I prayed in my bed at seven. Oh, save me. The fears were still there. It happened again and again. About 11 years old, I heard a man preach on hell at my church, and I was terrified. I thought, oh no, this is me. And I remember some kind of a decision, I've got to find out how to be a Christian. And somehow I began reading my Bible. I don't remember all, but I remember this. One time I was at home, and my eyes came to John 19, and they hit these words, it is finished. And suddenly, at least this is my memory, it flashed on me, what is finished? Oh, all the work is done. Then I'm saved. And this, this comfort and joy came into me. I remember I was somewhere in my parents' bedroom, by myself. Was I saved that day at 11 years old? I don't know. But I have from that day to this traced my conversion back to John 19 verse 30. It is finished. And maybe one of you here tonight will take that and it will be your saving word. It is finished. I had prayed. I had gone to church. I was still afraid. But those words, oh, if it's finished, then what am I worried about? What am I wondering for? Let me throw it all on Jesus. And having said that, I come to you now and say, I want you to think about what was finished. Seven mighty actions. And here's the sermon in one sentence. In these six hours on the cross, there was a mighty complex of saving works, a bag, a collection, a great architectural structure of saving grace that was completed and set in motion by the Son of God. Let's see them. Number one, the first action that was done was the goal of the incarnation. Jesus came to earth to die for sinners. The incarnation is inseparable from the atonement. What is the incarnation? It's when God the Son came from heaven and took what? took a body, took flesh. And now on the cross, Jesus while hanging there says, it's done. Everything that I had begun when I took flesh, it's all done. I came down here for a purpose and it's done. Listen to these verses. John 5, 36. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. John 17, 4, I glorified you on the earth. I have accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Hebrews 9, 26, but now once in the end of the age, he has been manifested. Christ has taken on flesh to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And here's the best one. Listen to this in Hebrews 10. Therefore, when the son comes into the world, he says, <clears throat> Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you prepared for me. 
Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. You gave me a body. Why? I delight to do your will, O God. The incarnation was a great leap. And Jesus Christ finished everything of the incarnation on the cross. Number two. The first one is the goal of the incarnation. Number two. The wrath of the Father was finished. You need to understand this. This might be pivotal to you. God's wrath. The Father is in heaven and he is full of anger. Just read the Old Testament. What did he do in Genesis chapter 6? He looked down and said, Man's days, uh, uh, man is filled with evil. So his, his days will only be 120 years. Every thought of man is only evil continually. And so he takes eight men, he has them build a boat, and he destroys a million, two million, five million, ten million, some estimates 20 million people. He just destroyed them all. That's God's wrath and his anger. Look at Sodom and Gomorrah to see God's wrath and his anger. The modern church wants to destroy God's anger. But it is there in the Bible. What he felt in the fourth statement. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did the Father turn away from the Son? Because the Son was carrying all of the guilt of mankind. And the Father looked on that guilt and despised the guilt that was on his son. And so in hating the guilt that was born by the son, the father turns away from the son. And when he turns away, there was a breaking of the joy between the father and the son. And it was what you will experience in hell was in a harsher, heavier, worse way placed on the son on the cross. But when Jesus said, it is finished, he was saying, The wrath of the Father is finished. It's completed. It's gone. That is the word propitiation. Wait, did you miss it? I told you there were words. That's one of them. Propitiation. Propitiation was completed on the cross. He paid the final penny. He endured every stroke. He could not die until he had felt the weight of the crushing of his father. Let me ask you, in your understanding of the cross, do you have a place for anger? When when Jesus said it is finished, what was finished? The father's wrath. It's often put this way in poetry. Jesus drank the cup to the full. It was as if all of the anger of God was put into a cup, and Jesus picked it up and drank it down. R.C. Sproul tells a children's story of a prince who comes to die, and he's a righteous and good prince, and he has to die by drinking poison. And he takes that cup, and he picks it up and says, I'll drink every drop of the poison. And as he drinks it down, someone comes to pull his hand away. And he takes his hand back and says, no, there's still more drops in the cup. I'll take it all. And they say, but you'll die anyway. And he says, it's not enough. I'll take every drop 
that's in that cup. It's not enough merely for me to die. I will die having taken everything that I was supposed to take. And when Jesus said it is finished, he was saying, I took out every drop, every bit, every line of the law was fulfilled in me. Every horror of hell was poured out on Christ. Every flame of eternal conscious torment was endured by the Son. He took it all. That is propitiation. Propitiation is the doctrine that the terrifying anger of the Father was completed and absorbed in the Son. Now let me ask you, can you now tell me what propitiation is? Propitiation is the Father pouring out and the Son absorbing all the anger. So how much anger is there left for Paul the Apostle? How much anger is there left for Alpheus Nyalungu? How much anger is there left for Deneo Maleti Rambao? How much anger is there left for Thilani or Caleb? How much anger is there left for me? If you have been all your lifetime in bondage to the fear of death, then look, there's no anger left. The prince could not be pushed aside. He would take that cup and drink every drop until he had finished it all. That's propitiation. It was finished at the cross. Number three, what was finished? The sinner's guilt. Not only the father's wrath, but the sinner's guilt. The Bible teaches the doctrine of substitution from the beginning to the end. Are you familiar with the story of Adam and Eve? Who ate the fruit? Adam and Eve. Who took the guilt? Cain and Abel. Did Cain and Abel eat the fruit? No. Who ate the fruit? Adam and Eve. But who took the guilt? Cain and Abel. From the beginning of the Bible, there is substitution. Adam stands in the place of all his people. And the people of Adam include black and white and colored, and Indian, and Chinese. All people are Adam's people because they all come from him. That's one more of the evil wickednesses in evolution. You see, there was a real Adam and there was a real Eve who were in a real garden and who ate real fruit. And when they chose to break the law, they substituted for all of their people. But as 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, there is another substitute. Not only did Adam stand for all his people, but Jesus stands up as the champion for all his people. And on the cross, he finished substitution. The liberals, that is theologians who want to pretend they are Christians, but they don't want the Christian doctrines. They try to cut out propitiation because they say, God cannot be angry. God is love. They say God is love and therefore he can't be angry so they cut out what doctrine? Propitiation. And they say, if God's not angry, then Jesus wasn't taking anyone's place. So they cut out substitution. But the Bible teaches that Jesus died a propitiating death and a substitutionary 
death. Abraham offered Isaac, but what did God give? A ram in the place of Isaac. The Mosaic sacrifices are pictures where instead of you dying, you must put your hand on the head of the cow or the lamb or the goat. And that animal will die in your place. Leviticus 1 verses 3 and 4. In the New Testament, Christ dies and stands for his people. Adam was our substitute in sin, our federal head in sin, but Christ is our substitute. And on the cross, he said, it is finished. Tonight, when you take the Lord's table, you think to yourself, he took that cup. You're drinking pure grape juice to remember his wonderful blood and remember that he took the poison cup and drank it to the bottom. Remember that you were supposed to be at the firing squad, but he pushed you out of the way and took the penalty. Those are the things he finished. But he finished more. He finished the law's demands. Have you listened? All of these have an apostrophe. The incarnation's goal. The father's wrath. The sinner's guilt. Listen to this one. You need to know this one. Martin Luther called this one the heart of the gospel. This is number four, right? Number four, the law's demands. I'll give you a word. Can anyone guess the word for the law's demands? Justification. On the cross, when Jesus said, it is finished, he was finishing justification. He finished the incarnation. He finished propitiation. He finished substitution. He now finishes justification. What? is justification. For time, let me just very briefly summarize. The law demanded absolute perfection. Am I right? Matthew 5.48, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. All the perfect people, please raise their hands. No one's perfect. And remember, the rabbis counted 613 laws in the Old Testament. But you see, Jesus kept all the laws. He lived as a baby and did not break the laws. He lived as a child and did not break the laws. As a young man, he still did not break the laws. As he became a teenager, 14, 15, 16, can you imagine he never once had a bad thought? He never once got angry at his six brothers and sisters. Yes, he had at least six brothers and sisters. He never got angry at them. He never once disrespected his mother or father. He was never late for his tasks. He was never lazy. He was never slow. He was never angry in an unjust way. He obeyed the law absolutely from start to finish. And we have a word for that. That's called this. Are you ready? Active obedience. You see, Jesus earned righteousness by his active obedience. This is taught in Hebrews 5.8 where it says, he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. He, number one, became righteous by his active obedience of the law. And number two, he suffered and died. When he suffered and died, what was Jesus doing when they put the nails in his hand. 
Nothing. What was Jesus doing when they whipped him? Nothing. What was Jesus doing when they punched him? Nothing. What was Jesus doing when they put the crown of thorns on his head? That's why we call it passive. When he was living as a 14-year-old boy, and here comes a girl with bad dress, what must Jesus do? He must actively turn his head. When his brothers come up and falsely accuse him, he must actively tell the truth. But now on the cross, when they put the nails in, he must passively endure that. We say there's active obedience, and we say there's more. What else is there? Passive obedience. If you'll notice in our songbooks, in the um, creed at the end, which I want to put into the new Tsonga songbooks, in the creed at the end, number 57, it says, in number six, believers are justified by God imputing Christ's active obedience to the whole law and his passive obedience in death. There it is. Number six. And I put that in there from the confession because of this verse. On the cross, what had Christ finished? He had obeyed the law perfectly, and now passively, he had received all the guilt of the world and completely fulfilled the righteousness of God that he promised he would do in Matthew chapter three when he said, when, they, when, they came to bapt- um, when he came to John the Baptist to, to be baptized, John said, no, I can't baptize you. And what did Jesus say? Permit me to be baptized so that I might fulfill all righteousness. He was in the midst, in Matthew chapter 3, he was in the midst of fulfilling the law. And he said, no, no, baptize me because I'm going to fulfill every part of the law. And then when he dies on the cross, he passively fulfills the parts of the law about the sacrifices. Brothers and sisters, this tells us that there is nothing else for you to do but believe on Christ. Look to Him. Trust in Him. Depend on Him. Cast your soul on Him. It is finished. That means justification. Number four. What is justification? It is this. Your bank account has a trillion rand debt. Why? Because yesterday you got angry. But today it's not a trillion rand. How much is it? It's 20 trillion. Because from yesterday to today, you desired someone else's bucky. You gossiped about someone else. You forgot to pray. You were ungrateful for the country you live in and the son that God gave you. And so your debt is 20 trillion. You can't even understand how much 20 trillion is. If all of the money of this entire country for an entire year were taken, it would not equal 20 trillion. That's more than the gross product of the entire country for a year, and that's your guilt for a single day. But you've lived more than a day. You have so much guilt that it cannot possibly be paid. And justification means this. Christ comes down and he erases that debt. But then what more does he do? 
He adds onto your account all of his obedience to the law, the 613 laws for 33 years, all that righteousness that he had earned, and he pours it out on you. It's like giving you the bank card. The Catholic Church said this. Jesus gives you righteousness to pay for your past sins. But then you need the saints to give you righteousness for your future sins. And so they encouraged each person, go do good things so that when you die, your good things can be given to someone else who needs them. You with me on this? Well, number one, that's false because you don't do anything good. We're all bad. And number two, that's false because what does it say about Jesus' goodness? It's not that much. It's not enough. Which is why the Catholic Church believes in Christ, but not Christ alone. We believe in Christ alone. It's his passive righteousness and his active righteousness that is all poured out on me. And I don't need the righteousness of Nyalungu, and I don't need the righteousness of Rambau, and I don't need the righteousness of mayors. I need the righteousness of Christ. And if I've got that, I'm settled. That's justification. That's the law's demands. That's number four. Number five. This is interesting. What was finished on the cross? The devil's works. Go in your Bibles to 1 John 3, verse 8. Maybe you need to see this one. 1 John 3, verse 8. And we, we, need, we need to see this because there are false doctrines about this. 1 John 3, verse 8. He who commits sin is of the devil. The devil sins from the beginning. This, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested so that he might do what? Destroy something. What does the Son of God want to destroy? The Son of God was manifested. Me, the Son of God took flesh. The Son of God took flesh in order to destroy what? Colossians chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 2 show us very clearly it was on the cross that Jesus destroyed the works of the devil. Now, the works of the devil are not poverty, sickness, lack of success, failure, losing a job, those are not the works of the devil. And I can show it to you right in the verse. Are you there in 1 John 3? Look back to verse 6. Whoever abides in him does not do what? Oh. Whoever sins has not seen him or known him. Do you see the word sin? How many times is it in verse 6? How many times do you see the word sin in verse 5? Two times? How many times in verse 4? How many times in verse 8? How many times in verse 9? Can anyone just give me a hint? What do you think is the topic that he's discussing here? 
sin. And then furthermore, what does he say? If you go on sinning, you're not of God. But if you don't sin, you are of God. Look at this in verse 9. Whoever is born of God does not sin. His seed remains in him. He cannot sin because he's born of God. Oh, so if you're born of God, you don't sin. What do you think the works of the devil are in the context? Sin. That's it. This is not talking about poverty. The false teachers who say, to finish the works of the devil, and they shout about how they're going to give you money or prosperity, they didn't read from verse 4 to verse 9 because they don't care about verse 4 to verse 9. They only care about getting your money out of your pocket. Like Bushiri said, the bad news is we need 5 million rand to finish our building. The good news is we've got it all. The bad news is it's still in your pockets. Have you seen that video clip? What is he saying? Well, he wants your money, so he's going to say, he's going to take this verse and say, oh, Jesus came to finish the works of the devil. And then he's going to shout about, are you poor? Do you want a car? Do you want a good job? Blah, 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 blah. Just like a Sangoma. But what are the works of the devil in the context? Oh, on the cross, when Christ said it is finished, he was finishing sin or Here's another big word. Ready? Big word. Sanctification. Sanctification. He was finishing sanctification. Sanctification means this. Slowly stopping your sin. That's pretty easy, right? You don't have to be afraid of that. Did you get that? What is sanctification? Slowly stopping your sin. So on the cross... The incarnation was finished. On the cross, propitiation was finished. What's propitiation? Absorbing God's anger. Jesus took in all of God's anger. Then on the cross, he finished what? After propitiation. The sinner's guilt. Substitution. Substitution. Jesus took our place. Then on the cross, number four, he finished what? Justification. That's where he gives us all of his righteousness. And then number five, what does he finish? sanctification that's slowly stopping your sin but the power for you to stop any of your sin comes from Jesus when he said it is finished men cannot stop their sin and maybe one of the best things to make you become a Christian is to say this oh are you doing anything bad yeah yeah I'm doing these things oh then go stop it and they will try to stop it and what will happen they will fail. Carson on Friday night made these New Year's resolutions and he said, I'm going to do this and do this and do this. The very next day on our hike yesterday, he broke his resolution. And then again, and then again, so much so that last night I said, Carson, you've broken this New Year's resolution over and over. And do you know what my little boy did? He cried right in front of me. Why did he cry? Because he's learning this lesson. I can't stop it. I said I wasn't going to get angry. But within 24 hours, I've gotten angry four times. I can't stop it. 
and I say, I love you, Carson. I love you. But the only way you're ever going to stop your anger is if you go to the one who said it is finished because he finished sanctification. You can't ever stop it. You're always going to be lazy. You're always going to be lustful. You're always going to be angry. You're always going to be gossiping. Why is it that Afrikaners haven't stopped their racism? Because unless they're born again, they can't. Why isn't black people haven't stopped their witchcraft? Because unless they're born again, they, they can't. The only way they can is if they go to the one who said, it's finished. Why isn't women haven't stopped their gossip? Because if they don't go to Jesus, they can't. He finished it. He was he was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. And when he said, it is finished, everything inside salvation was included. Brothers and sisters, if you are struggling with sin, go back to these words, it is finished, and say, oh Jesus, you said it's finished, but I'm not seeing it. I'm still doing this. Help me, help me, help me, help me. He'll answer that prayer because he finished it enough to supply the strength for you to stop your laziness, your bad habits, your broken promises. Aren't we all like Carson? Haven't we all made promises Friday night and we've already broken them? Go back to Christ and say, you finished it, now help me, and he will. Number six, the Spirit's purchase. Number six, the Spirit's purchase. I got this from Jonathan Edwards. I just read an essay that I gave to Lloyd this morning and Bacado just now. Jonathan Edwards wrote an essay on what is the Trinity. And he says in that essay, he argues that Jesus is the wisdom of God. And that the Spirit is the love of God. So that if you could take love and make it a person, it would be the Holy Spirit. And if you could take wisdom and make it a person, it would be the Son of God. And Edwards goes even further in his brilliant 10th page in that article. Maybe the best page in the whole essay. And Edwards argues, on the cross, Jesus was purchasing the Spirit so that he could give out the Spirit to his people. I had never heard that before. But he argues it so well. And it's hinted at in Ephesians 1 verse 13. Edward's argument has many verses. I'm just, for time, I'm only going to give you this one. Ephesians 1 13. Through redemption, Jesus gives us the down payment of the Holy Spirit. Where did the down payment come? Oh, from Christ on the cross. And then he gives the down payment of his spirit to us. And what is it, the down payment? What's the down payment do? It means, oh, I'm going to finish it. This is just the beginning. It's when you go to pay Lobola and you've got to pay 30,000, you've only got 10. You give 10,000, you say, I'll, I'll keep paying, but here's the first 10. And they say, okay. And Lobola is never finished. Well, the wonderful thing is that Christ will never finish giving out the riches of what he purchased at the cross. But the down payment came with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13. And then finally, what is the seventh thing that was finished on the cross? The son's agreement. The son's agreement. We call that the new covenant. 
<clears throat> the new covenant was completed on the cross. He said a few hours before he died, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. In Hebrews 7.22 it says, by this he is the mediator of a better covenant. Oh, by what? By his death. When he died, he became the man who's in complete control of that agreement. Jesus controls who gets into that agreement, whose name is included in that agreement. He controls who stays in that agreement. Jesus is the one who controls that agreement start to finish. He has 100% prerogative over who's in that agreement, which is what it says in John chapter 5 again, when it says in verse 29, the Son brings to life anyone he wills because the Son died for his people. And in his new covenant, which he finished on the cross and became the mediator of on the cross, he says, I determine who gets in that covenant. So let me ask you this. Are you in the covenant? Some of us should say this. I'm afraid I'm not in the covenant. And then what you should do is go and fall at Jesus' feet and say, oh, please, 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 please. And for an hour by yourself in your room, Say, please, 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 Jesus, include my name. Because he controls that covenant completely. He'll hear you, though, because whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. But as Lloyd said, Lloyd grew up going to church. And when he came to South Africa, he tried this church, he tried that church. But he was not born again because he didn't get these things. He didn't know what was finished. He didn't know how it was finished for him, and he never thrown his soul on it. And so I tell you now in closing, here it is. On the cross, he finished everything that had to do with our salvation outside of calling us in time because we weren't even born when he died. But he prepared it all. He built up the house so that we could come in. Come and welcome now. I tell you, you've been waiting so long. Is it so good to serve Satan? Is it a joy to be a slave to sin? Is it something you would say, let me just stay another day or two in Satan's power? Come, come, he's finished it all. The house is beautiful and the door is open. And if you are a believer tonight, have you understood even part of what he said with it is finished? As we go to the table tonight, say in your heart, oh Lord Jesus, forgive me for not loving you more. Forgive me for not praising you more because it is finished. And may those words save the youngest child here as they saved me. And may they save the oldest adult here. And may they bless our hearts and draw us to the Savior. Oh Lord Jesus, we love you for finishing the work. You did not quit. You were not lazy. You finished. And how we love you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.